Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. I'm in the Union Square Cafe, a mainstay of the New York dining scene since the roaring 80s. In a couple of hours, it'll be buzzing with the sound of lunch service, but right now I have the place almost to myself. Mm, I'm tucking in, hello. Did you say tucking in? <laughs> that is the ultimate compliment. Do you want some iced coffee to go with that since it's so hot outside? I'd love it. Only makes it taste better. Next to me is Danny Meyer one of the few restaurant owners better known than the chefs he employs. His restaurants range from the Art Deco elegance of Eleven Madison, a three-Michelin-starred kitchen at the hottest end of haute cuisine, to the fast food chain Shake Shack. But that world is changing. Authenticity vies with food fads. One week, it's Georgian Hajipuri. The next, it's the cronut, or in Danny's case, the crawler. Veganism is on the rise, driving the development of fake meat. Several superstar chefs have been dethroned over allegations of harassment. And an endless stream of pop-ups and instant delivery services challenges the fine dining establishment. So this week we're asking, what's the winning recipe for the restaurant of the future? Danny Meyer, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Anne. Restaurants are notorious for the rate of failure... It can't have been easy coming into a very crowded New York restaurant world in the mid-80s. What were the the ups and downs of the early years? So in the mid-80s, it truly was not nearly so crowded as it is right now. As a matter of fact, in retrospect, it was kind of a real big bullseye, easy to hit. I wish I had seen it even sooner. In New York in the mid-1980s, we had two ways to dine. Um, You could go to a restaurant that started with Lola or Eel, and those were kind of fancy special occasion restaurants, mostly Italian and French. Or you could go to a pub or a chain restaurant. But there was almost nothing right in the center which served you really good food, really good wine, and yet you didn't have to kind of be polite to the maitre d' just to get a table outside of the bathroom. And Union Square Cafe, when it came along, was just that. And and it captured the spirit of the restaurants that I had loved as I grew up. Some of them were trattorias in Italy. Some of them were bistros in Paris. And some of them were that breezy cafe bar and grill that was starting to pop up all over the the Bay Area, San Francisco and, and Berkeley at the time. I love fine dining. We've got a handful of restaurants that I think really care deeply about that. But... I think sometimes doing simple things exceptionally well is even harder than inventing things that nobody's ever heard of. So what ingredients would you use now, if you do, that you didn't use then? I mean, when did kale happen? I mean, it now is <laughs> so many things we take for granted. We realize it's probably not that long ago since we ate them for the first time. What about you? Well, it's funny. Everything we're using, in fact, was pretty much available back in 1985. The question is, 
why did kale all of a sudden go from something that nobody knew what to do with to something that's on every single plate? Why did Brussels sprouts become one of the most popular dishes? Do you know the dishes? answer to those questions? I, I do know. I think people learned how to cook them. If you overcook Brussels sprouts, they kind of smell like a baby's diaper. And I think if you roast them or, or you saute them or you steam them the right way and season them the right way, it's one of the most delicious foods on earth. And I, I'm eager to figure out what's going to be next that people never knew how to cook. I'm, I'm, well, you can tell us. I'm willing to bet on Swiss chard. Swiss chard is the new Brussels sprouts. You've heard it here first. And when you open restaurants or have as, as many different tiers of restaurants as, as you have, you need the critics, you need word of, of mouth. How much stock do you set by that? Obviously, it must matter what people think, but a bit like being in the theatre. Yeah, you have I, to find balance of how much you care about the reviews and how much you get on with the show. I never feel good when we get a bad review. Um, and I think the minute I start to feel okay with that is the minute I should probably retire. But I also have learned that almost every single bad review we've ever gotten, when you look back on it five years later, ten years later, and the bruise is gone, <laughs> you actually can see that there was often some truth in what they wrote and that it was often the kick in the rear end that, that we needed. Give me a great example of that if you can remember one. Oh, I, I remember so many of them. In fact, my memory is peerless when it comes to critiques for some reason. I'll never forget when Gramercy Tavern first opened, uh, which was exactly 25 years ago. We just celebrated our birthday. And the day we opened, we were on the cover of New York Magazine. The only thing on the cover of the magazine, it was completely white, except for a pack of matches that said Gramercy Tavern. And then it had four gold stars underneath it. And it said, the next restaurant from Union Square Cafe's Danny Meyer. It created a sense that we were self-anointing four stars, and it then invited every critic out there to say, guess what, you're not. And guess what, they were right. So we were crucified first by New York Magazine's restaurant critic because she had not been told that this article was happening, and she was really, really upset by that. Then we got a review of two stars from Ruth Reichel at the New York Times, Every single thing she pointed out that could have been better was correct. However, I'll never forget the last line of her review, which said, I'm expecting like a good wine from a pedigreed vineyard. This one will only improve with age. One of the big rivalries in the food scene in, in America has been between New York and L.A. What are the differences and are they cultural? I'm just fascinated as a, as a visitor to both how much these come out of the places and how much they're kind of entrepreneurs following different paths because that's what a good business is and that's what a great opportunity looks like. Well, I love the fact that when I'm in Los Angeles, I'm trying to find a restaurant of its terroir. I'm very proud of New York and what we have to offer. But I think that the factors that lead to those differences are that chefs and restaurateurs eat in each other's restaurants all the time. And so you see certain trends perpetuated. You also have a similar base of suppliers so that we're buying our vegetables from many of the same farmers as many of the other restaurants in New York City. Real estate is a big player. So for example, in Los Angeles, they're not sort of girded by this synthetic island that we have here called Manhattan, where real estate prices are very high. The expectation is that you're going to have a big profile production 
with lots of decor. If you go to Los Angeles, there are so many different types of buildings that you drive to. The scale of a restaurant itself can often lead to a lot of the innovation. So the smaller the restaurant, the less you have to have something for everybody. The real estate market, the ability to get all kinds of great fruits and vegetables in season. And I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that Los Angeles is quickly becoming, if not the most exciting restaurant town in the country, it's certainly on its way. And I'm fine with that. I do have a bit of a tease for you on California. I think it's in the film The Kids Are All Right, when Annette Benning, with everything else falling apart in her relationship with her gay partner out at a restaurant they have a slightly disastrous encounter and she lets loose at the heirloom tomatoes <laughs> says i can't eat another lots of expletives heirloom tomato that sense of a single ingredient becoming a bit overpraised or overpresent. do you ever feel that i i do and and you know one big change i've seen in the farmer's market uh, at union square just since since first opening in 1985 is that many of the farmers in the early days were what we call cash crop farmers. And they would grow a little bit of everything. They'd have lettuce and tomatoes and eggplants and potatoes and cucumbers and peppers. And today what you're increasingly seeing, and I, and I would say that uh, there was a potato farmer in the market. There was an apple grower in the market who really started a whole new trend, which is rather than having one variety of many things, they had many varieties of one thing. Tomatoes, certainly, um, and I'm going to say this was probably in the 1990s when we started seeing some of the, the tomato farmers saying, forget all those other crops. Now, you're I'm, being very polite to the tomatoes, I would say, tomato, as you would say, because we're divided here by a common language. Do you also say potato? Uh, no. Well, then <laughs> let's call <laughs> the whole thing off. I did say off. when I arrived, and you gave me something very delicious uh, uh, to eat, a pastry, I said I was tucking in. And I don't know why, but you found this very You were funny. talking into a cinnamon cruller from Daily Provisions, which is a remark. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Have I you ever in. had a better donut? No. Thank you. But I got confused between a cronut and a crawler. She might as well put me right. There is a, an item called a cruller. And rather than being a cakey donut, it's an egg-based donut that's almost completely air. So it's you're getting light, all it? this flavor, but it's very, very light. It's very good. I don't want to know if it's doing me any harm because it was very good. So I think I'm just going to leave it at that. One thing we haven't touched on is you running very individual restaurants, Gramercy Tavern and, and here. But the Shake Shack and the idea of chains. Now, I think for a long time they were seen as two very different entities, two very different skill sets. That's really been one of your big innovations is to say I can do both and do both different markets to a high standard how difficult is that well it is difficult and it's easy and i'll try to explain why i'm I'm answering it both ways what's happened over i'd say really the last 10 to 15 years or so is that our industries or our ends of the industry have respectively learned that we need to come together we need better systems and we need to be better business people and i think chain restaurants have learned that they better try to retrofit good taste and seasonality into their offerings. So I think that the reason that Shake Shack was born was a complete accident, except that it goes back to my deeply held feeling that at the end of the day, everything is hospitality. I wanted to prove in the summer of 2001 in a park with a hot dog cart, guess what? You can actually make a hot dog taste better if you remember the toppings that somebody want. You can say welcome back because you remember that they were at your hot dog cart. 
And we ended up having a massive hit that lasted for three summers as a hot dog cart. And then 15 years ago, opened our first Shake Shack. And we, we said, let's see if we can actually create something that draws people to the park and creates a revenue source for the park. Every time somebody bought a burger, a percentage of those sales would go right back into that park. Today, 15 years later, we got a nice business out of it. And annually, the revenues just from that Shake Shack, that single Shake Shack, approach $1 million for the park. And this is a sort of theory that you're well known for, enlightened hospitality, a sort of something that goes beyond the experience of just getting something delicious on a plate at a good price and decent decent service. But there are challenges to this. And the more you put yourself out there kind of philosophically, you know, the more when the, something goes wrong or there is incoming criticism, it must be, be difficult. And I'm thinking here of the Me Too movement, which has also swept through the, the restaurant, the hospitality business. I mean, it really is where it went next after Hollywood and, and showbiz, which would indicate that there was more of a problem with it than that which was acknowledged by those who've been leading in the industry. When you look back and you've had your own cases, which you've dealt with, put new processes in place and all that good stuff. Did you miss what was happening under your nose? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I want to be very clear about something, which is that enlightened hospitality, which is what you led your question with, is not the reason for the problems that our industry has faced. As a matter of fact, by having a philosophy of enlightened hospitality, we have a mandate to address this. Because if we say that We will never make guests measurably happier than we're making our own staff. If we miss something that's going on, that is a major problem for everything. So in our industry, we saw everything on one end from serious predatory behavior bordering on the criminal. We never saw that in our organization. What we missed uh, in a couple of cases were areas where perhaps a chef or a sous chef or somebody else might have made someone else feel uncomfortable. It could have been creepy. It could have been an aggression. It could have been a microaggression. But the fact is, we're responsible for that. And if that person doesn't feel safe or excellent coming to work, there's no way on earth I can expect them to take great care of our customers. And so what have we done? Seeing that and seeing what's happening in our industry, we want to lead our industry. And yeah, we got some black eyes. And I think Because we care deeply about caring for each other, when we make a mistake, we're held to a higher standard, and we should be held. We want to be held to a higher standard. Do do you think, I mean, it's just interesting because it came up in an interview with Anna Winter, Condé Nast. I I hear the same thing in the fashion industry, in the restaurant industry, in politics, which is, uh, you know, oh, we didn't really know this was here. And now that we know it, it, it was at scale and a really bad thing, you know, I'll get right on it. I mean, how much do you look at yourself and think, I knew so much about my business, but there was something missing that I didn't know that? I feel bad about that. A year and a half ago, I did a listening tour throughout all of our businesses. I can't know everything happening in an organization of 2,500 people, but I am responsible for setting a tone and, and having a leadership structure where people know that this matters a lot. Once you know, and something's out in full daylight. If you don't do something about it at that point, it's completely on you. And so we've got a women in leadership committee. We have a full 24-hour anonymous, separate whistleblower opportunity for people who don't feel like they're getting their needs met by our HR department. And I think that we've also been really, really focused on 
two things that I know have become the words du jour, diversity and inclusion, but guess what? They're real. I think the more people who are at the table, the greater the odds are that you're going to reduce, hopefully down to nothing, what's going on. And I have to say, it was it was a very challenging thing. We ended up terminating a number of people when the light was shined on things that had been happening in the past. Something else that's changed is your policy on tipping. Why did you go out on a limb, really, with the hospitality group and say that you were going to change and put more money in up front? Well, I mean, our country created the tipping system many, many years ago. The story I understand is that tipping came to America almost immediately after slavery was abolished. There were two industries in our country that tried to petition the government saying, we're not going to pay our service staff. That was the uh, the porters for the Pullman train car industry and waiters in restaurants who were largely African-American at that point. We're not going to pay them anything, but it's not slavery because we're going to get our customers to pay them instead. And so for the longest time in our country, the minimum wage was adjusted for tipped employees. It began at $0 an hour. In still more states than not, the adjusted minimum wage for tipped employees is $2.13 an hour. That is happily going up almost everywhere right now. But we said to ourselves, above all, and a lot of this has to do with me personally, having been someone who was a poli-sci major, thinking I was going to become a lawyer, and then who knows what after that, and then disappointing many people in my family by saying, I'm just going to be a restaurateur. Maybe I started my career with a little chip on my shoulder, and I wanted to absolutely make sure that people looked at our industry as a professional career choice. And I always looked at tips as being part of industries that were not a professional commitment but rather something I'm doing while I'm actually pursuing something else. And so that was the primary reason. The second reason that we eliminated tipping was that tips in America are generally connected to the cost of the goods sold. It's usually, right now, 20% times the menu price. Well, guess what? Menu prices have only gone up over time. And as menu prices have gone up, tipped employees have made more and more money. That's great. But who has not made more money? The people who are prohibited legally from accepting tips. And in our country, sadly, that is the people who are making your food. To and, the backroom staff. And it just felt like a horrible situation where every single Are you single winning year, that battle? Because you, you lost quite a lot of staff in the turnover. And I'm not seeing, and maybe I'm not dining out in all the right places... I'm not seeing what you're doing spreading fast as a practice in the in the city. Are you winning overall on this? Well, I think we're making great headway. It's very, very difficult. But when we started this in 2015, the disparity was 2.7 times the amount of money you could make as a tipped employee compared to a non-tipped employee in our company. Today, that number is 1.9 times as much. In that same period of time, front of the house formerly tipped employees are making 9% more today than they were making when we started this, whereas back-of-the-house employees are now making 37% more. Meanwhile, you're absolutely right. Many, many restaurants have said, we wish we could do this, but we can't figure out how to create a balance between the right price that's not going to scare away customers, the amount of money that's not going to scare away formerly tipped employees, and 
and the right amount of profit that's not going to scare away investors. And getting that three-legged stool to be balanced is a very, very difficult thing. We chose to take a lead on this issue. It's never easy being the leader. And if, if it were easy, everybody else would be doing it. If I were to come into the classic entry-level restaurant job, I would once have come as, I don't know, pot washer. You might have taken me on. Yeah, I think I could I could do that. Um, but, of course, I might now find that uh, that job is going to be replaced. There's a, a robot uh, called the Dishcraft, I think, that might uh, beat me in terms of my efficiency on pot washing. Um, uh, there's a company in San Francisco called Creator. has a robot that will make you a burger that's never been touched by a human hand. Poor old humans. These technological disruptions, big challenge the way your businesses have been running, aren't they? It could be a challenge. It could be an opportunity. We're not using robots anywhere at this point. But, you know, we've all seen this in every aspect of our lives. And it's not going to stop. You can't put technology back into the bottle. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I do think the one thing that we are committed to is this, with respect to technology, that, that we're in a high-touch business. And if you can use tech to advance touch, it's probably good tech. If you're just using technology to cut back on human contact, I don't think that's why the world needs restaurants. I think the reason that people come to restaurants is to have an experience that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten, but that they absolutely need. And I think face-to-face -face contact, eye contact, smiles are always going to matter. You're very good with the eye contact. I noticed that. That'll be what 30 years in the business does for you, right? Uh, you're also involved with a, a growth investment fund called Enlightened Hospitality Investments. And I think the purpose of that is also to be active and to invest in particularly tech companies, but innovations that you hope will drive change in, in the section. What would you pick out there as something that you think is Well, the real reason that we created Enlightened Hospitality Investments was to reinforce that we believe that the way we prioritize stakeholders is actually a very, very prosperous way to do business where all stakeholders win. We also recognize we don't have a monopoly on all the great ideas out there. So when we could find other business ideas that are scalable, led by people we wish we had hired with an idea we wish we had had, we make an investment. And so far, we're in about four different food businesses and about five different... Give me an work, worked example of One that. is a, a company called Gather which is creating a marketplace for private dining rooms. Even with all the fantastic online restaurant businesses like Open Table and Resi, most of them don't let you know that a, a restaurant has a private dining space. And so Gather is bringing people together in larger spaces. There's another business called Goldbelly, which I love, which is bringing the experience of your favorite iconic local food, wherever you grew up in America, wherever you went to college in America, you miss a specific pizza or a yeah. specific donut or cruller or barbecue or cake, and you can actually get that iconic food delivered to where you now live within 24 hours. And we think that that's, that's an exciting great. business. I think I might send you a challenge on that. I'm from the northeast of England, and I wonder how widely represented that is in your cooking. So I'm going to send you a challenge on that. Do we have a deal? Deal. It's 24 hours, right? Uh, I didn't say internationally. But, <laughs> International but shipping. We'll, no, we will do it here in New York. Okay, New York, we can I'll do. come to New York and I'll, next time I'm here and we'll let our listeners know how it goes. That would be great. As I find the most rarefied oddity of uh, Northwest Durham to, uh, to send to you. But here in New York. But you're... I'm just going to say one more thing. We're obviously in an age in our industry where there's this battle between convenience and experience. We know, and you know, that people are much more interested in experiences today even than they are in things. 
But within our industry, we're also finding that people are interested in this dichotomy between convenience. Can I push a button on my phone and have a three-ton piece of metal bring our food to your place wherever you are within 40 minutes? Or do I want to go to a place which is it's it's inherently inconvenient to leave your apartment and transport yourself to a restaurant and get a reservation and get a table? Do I want the experience of how they made me feel at the restaurant? And so we're looking at that dichotomy and saying, where do we play within that, within all of our different businesses? So with the exception of where we're, we're sitting and the other restaurants that we've uh, discussed along the way, suggest a great New York restaurant for us. Where would you go for dinner that wasn't yours? You know, it's, it's a great question, and I promise you I'm not skirting the answer, but I try to go to a different restaurant so I can learn something new. One of the few restaurants that I would return to over and over again sadly just closed. It was a restaurant called Barbudo in the West Village, um, and I loved it because everybody was nice, the food was always good, and yet it didn't ask anything extra of you. You didn't have to get dressed up if you didn't want to. You didn't have to wait for a special occasion, although I have celebrated birthdays there. But I, I really I'm surprised missed... you didn't buy it. <laughs> Just well, seeing as it's now extinct. I, I think the problem was that the landlord had a better use for that building, and that's really one of the challenges our industry faces. What's your perfect one-course meal? Perfect one-course meal for me would be an amazing sausage and mushroom pizza with a great bottle of Italian red. You're on. Danny Meyer, thanks very much. Thank you, Anne. We'd love to hear what you think. Will our meat-free burgers be served by robots soon? Or will the crowds keep queuing for human service at Union Square? Write to us, radio at economist.com, tweet us at Economist Radio, and please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Good service, guaranteed. And please do subscribe, economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in New York, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.